And the rest of us, if you are able to stand for a long time, you may stand to hear the word of God. Today's reading is from Exodus 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pythom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, If it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is the word of the Lord. So just a reminder, we're going to be having a second offering, and uh, that's going to be during the very final song that we'll be singing. Um, We will be having a special offering for uh, both the victims of Hurricane Harvey and Irma. It's going to be going to uh, our denomination's disaster relief fund. Uh, Every dollar we give will be going directly towards those and be given competently. So just to let you know again ahead of time, so that'll be the last song um, at the very end of our service, that is. We, as you probably can see from our bulletins, are beginning kind of a new journey here as we are going to be looking at this fantastic book of the Bible, Exodus. There's probably no story apart from the Gospels that is more fundamental to the truths of Scripture than this story that we're about to embark on. Um, 
So as we, as we prepare, we, let's, let's just take a moment in prayer before we look any further at this opening passage. Father, we again um, confess our weakness. Uh, you know the way that our minds and our hearts are. We can be unfocused, or even when we're paying attention, we can fail to recognize how important and how true what we're reading actually is. And so we ask that your spirit would help us with that. Lord, please make these truths real to us, that we might be changed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm wondering if you've ever noticed how jargony the Christian faith can sometimes be. So, I mean, you can just imagine someone saying, you know, I was having my quiet time this morning and God put it on my heart to ask for a hedge of protection around my dear brother who has this besetting sin and I think we just need to love on them. Which basically means, let's pray for Bob, he's got anger issues. But we feel the need to have this whole way of speaking, right? And it doesn't need to be that complicated. But there are some times, there are some words, I think, that are kind of Christianese, but are words that we actually really need because there's not a good replacement for them. And one of them, I would say, is the word bless. I, for the life of me, in the last few weeks, have been trying to think of what a good substitute for the word bless is that's less Christian-y, and I don't think there is one. I mean, this idea of bless is the idea of someone generously giving of themselves to bring about the good of another. It's a beautiful word if you think about it. I, when I think about blessing and how we experience it in tangible ways, I think of eight years ago. Eight years ago was when we moved into Hinsdale, and a veritable army of people from this congregation were there when we were moving in. I mean, every room was being cleaned, there was, everything was being carried, and we just were overwhelmed, and we felt blessed. You gave of yourselves generously to bring about our good. I think it's an important word, and I think it's important partly because the Bible uses it so frequently. And really, that's what our opening chapter in Exodus is about. It is about the blessing that comes from God. And, and really, what I'd like to do as we're beginning, as we're kind of almost laying the foundation for the story that we're going to be seeing in the coming weeks is for us to notice really four aspects to the story. As we walk through the story, four things that this story tells us about God's blessing. And the first thing I'd like us to see in this passage is that God is committed to blessing the world. God is committed to blessing the world. You know, our kids, when they were in grade school, at one point or another, they were taught that if you're writing fiction or nonfiction, you need to start with a hook, some way to bring people in. And it seems when we're looking at the beginning of Exodus that the writer did not get that memo. I mean, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, and then it just goes on until you understand that actually what you have right here is like, you know, an empire strikes back when the words are coming up the screen, or, or maybe even closer to accurate, you know when you see sometimes like a TV show and it says previously on, you know, previously on the story of God. That's, that's what's going on here. This, these verses at the very beginning are almost a direct quote actually from Genesis. And what Exodus is trying to tell you is this is not a standalone story. This is a sequel. And so to understand what's going on here, you need to remember what's happening in Genesis. 
And so for us to understand this, let, let's do a previously on, and you know how they always have that video montage, let's just do three scenes from Genesis to get us oriented. Scene one, the world is beautiful, it is pristine, it has just been made, and Adam and Eve are right there enjoying it, and then God speaks to them. And he gives them a mission. He says, I'm going to cause you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the land. That is what I'm calling you to do. And here's why. I want you to be my image bearers. I want you to show me to this world. To make this world more beautiful. I am going to bless this world through you. So there's this connection at the very beginning. Be fruitful so that I can bless the world. All right, scene two. Now it's hundreds of years later, and you can imagine maybe like a a 30-year-old Abraham in in the city that he grew up, and he's walking through the city, and you look around, and you see ugliness. You see people who are poor asking for funds. You see corruption as, as judges are being bribed as he's walking down the streets. You see people enslaved, and you realize that the mission that humanity was given, they have utterly failed in it. This world is broken. It's not being made more beautiful. And as as Abraham then walks into this kind of empty city street, suddenly God appears to him. He says, Abraham, you're going to leave this city. I'm going to take you to a land that you've never seen before. And I'm going to give you a child. And that child is going to have children. And those children are going to have children. I'm going to make you fruitful. And I'm going to multiply you. And you're going to fill the land so that there's going to be so many of you. It's going to be like sand in the seashore. And let me tell you why I'm doing that. Because through you, I'm going to bless the world. Scene three. Now it's, it's two generations later. You have J- Abraham's grandson, Joseph, and he's strangely wearing Egyptian garb, and he has like a clipboard in his hands, and he's overseeing the collection of food. And what's going on here is Joseph is preparing Egypt because Egypt and actually the whole world around is going to experience a famine unlike they have ever experienced before, a famine that would have been lethal. Except God gave Joseph the insight. God helped Joseph understand the dreams so that Joseph would be able to prepare Egypt so that they have all the food that they need for that moment. Joseph was going to save tens of thousands of lives. And so we see God's purposes beginning to be fulfilled through Abraham's descendants as they fill the world. The world is being blessed. And in, the, in a little while, Egypt is actually going to say, Joseph, you saved our lives. Bring your family. Live with us because we are so grateful for the way that you have blessed us. So that's the end of the previously on. And now, and now the, you know, the lights come on to our scene and we find out Joseph and his family have died generations ago. But our story begins really with verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And and as we're hearing this verse, two things should be occurring to us. One, wow, this is God, right? God is the one who's saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make you fruitful and I'm going to multiply you. He said that to Adam and now he says this to Abraham. And what do you know? This is exactly what God said was going to happen. God is doing this. And the second thing that should occur to us is God is committed to blessing the world. Because whenever he says be fruitful and multiply, it's always associated with the ideas. I want to fill this world with you so that I, through you, can bless this world. 
And so as we begin in Exodus, we're supposed to see God is committed to blessing this world, to generously giving of himself to make the world better. Think about what we're describing here. This is not just a one-time moment. This is God supervising over Abraham's grandchildren and making sure they have lots of kids. And then another generation. And after centuries, centuries now, there are thousands upon thousands, all who are gifts of God, all so that God can bless the world. And so as we see the beginning of Exodus, we're supposed to see this is what God is about. You know, we can sometimes get confused. There are so many details in the Bible, so many different parts, but you need to understand that under all of this, we have a God who is committed to showing grace. We have a God who wants to bless this world with his goodness, who wants to bless us. So that's the first thing we see in the story. As he is multiplying Israel, it is because of his commitments to bless this world. But the second thing we see is that this blessing is unstoppable. God's commitment to blessing is unstoppable. And we see that because what we see in the following verses is some resistance, some conflict. Verse 8 tells us there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And of course, it's not just saying he didn't have a personal relationship with. We're talking now, again, a couple centuries at least after It's more saying he didn't remember why Joseph was important. He looks at the people of Israel and he doesn't realize or remember why it is that Egypt gave them all this land. And most particularly, when he's looking at the people of Israel, he is, well, he's not happy. When he recognizes, when he hears the reports and sees that they've gotten bigger and bigger, what he doesn't say is, that is wonderful. I am so glad that these people are being prospered because they are our friends, and when they prosper, we prosper. Now, that's not his attitude at all. Notice what his attitude is. Verse 10, come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. Sorry, I should have gone even before. Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. Now, do you notice what he is worried about? They are being fruitful and multiplying, and I do not like it. That's what Pharaoh is saying. Now, what he's saying, if you think about it, is God is doing this. God is blessing them, and and God has blessed us through them, but I want this to stop. Right? If you think about it, what what Pharaoh has basically done is he says, I don't like what God is doing, and I'm going to stop it. Which is a strange thing, the way that Pharaoh stands in the way of God's purpose to bless until you realize that this happens again and again. So if we go just a couple hundred years later, or maybe a little even more than that, to to David and to Saul, you might know the story of Saul. Saul is the first king of Israel. And David is one of his military leaders. And God blesses David. David, everything he touches, he sees military victory. And you'd think that what Saul would do is say, this is wonderful. God has blessed through David. He's blessing me. The world is better because of this. But no, what does Saul do? He is threatened, and he's afraid, and he wants to kill David. You see, when you don't really have room in your life for God, even God's blessing is scary. And we see that again about a thousand years later, don't we? 
Uh, Jesus comes to this world, and what does he do? He speaks truth that is freeing. He, he touches people, and they're healed. He quite literally is God's blessing embodied in a human being. And what do the teachers do when they see someone who is so full of good for the world? They are threatened. They are jealous. And they want to kill him because when you don't really have room for God, you don't even have room for God's blessing. It continues today, doesn't it? I mean, how, how absurd is it for a nation when people in their nation are becoming Christians? Because what Christianity does is it turns us outward. It causes humility when we're understanding who Christ is. It causes us to seek to serve the world around us. Why would a nation want to resist that? And yet they do again and again in places like North Korea and many others. Because when you don't have room for God in your lives, you don't have room for God's blessing. And that's what we see with Pharaoh. He does not have room for what God is doing. And so he's got this plan. There Come, let us deal shrewdly, lest they multiply. So verse 11, therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities. You might wonder, okay, I don't get this. If he's worried about them becoming so much bigger, why is he sending them all, you know, like making them work? I don't see how that's going to help the population situation. But his plan is basically, I'm going to remove the men from their homes. They're going to have to travel, work in the cities, and if they don't have much time with their wives, they're not likely to have many children. And so you have to understand, this plan, he is directly setting himself against God. He is trying to resist God. God is saying, I'm going to bless the people of Israel because I'm committed to blessing the world. And Pharaoh is saying, "Uh uh-uh. And we can guess who's going to win in this showdown. Verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. Pharaoh is trying to resist the hand of God and that makes him an utter fool. And the more he makes things difficult, somehow they keep having lots and lots and lots of children. And again and again, there is the sign of God being involved and God being the one who is not going to be thwarted by Pharaoh. So Pharaoh, after time, it's maybe years where he's tried to make this operation abstinence through absence kind of plan work, and it's not working. He looks at the spreadsheet and he says, I've got to come up with another plan. And plan two is considerably darker than plan one. He takes the the chief midwives of the Hebrews, the Israelites, aside and says, here's what I'm going to command you to do. When you come and help children to be delivered, if they're girls, don't do anything different. But if it's a boy, you're going to need to strangle that child immediately. And if you do it the right way, they won't even know that you've killed. They just think it's a stillbirth. I want you to kill all male children. Well, again, he's resisting God. And again, that means there is no way he is going to win. And God has put for this very time, in this very moment, two women who have strong backbones, who are willing to resist Pharaoh even at the risk of their lives. And so they just flat out disobey. And Pharaoh brings them in and says, how come you have not been killing all of the boys just like I told you? And And what has to be this moment of sheer panic, they just say, 
The women are more vigorous of Israelites. And basically, when we come, the babies are already out. All we can do is put a diaper on them. It's just, that's the way it works with the Israelite women. And somehow Pharaoh goes, okay. <laughs> I mean, you can almost, like, you know, you know, if he has, like, you know, this villainous, you get like, ah, rats, foiled again. I mean, that's kind of what's going on here because Pharaoh is no match. He is not even close to a match for God. So then he goes to phase three, right? And he's like, okay, enough of this trying to do things subtly. I'm commanding my people, people of Egypt, whenever they see an infant boy, they are to just take that boy and throw him in the Nile River. I mean, this is pure evil. I mean, he's, he's seeking to do genocide through attacking the weakest and most vulnerable parts of the population. And yet even as we see this evil of him resisting God in its most obvious form, we know where the story goes, don't we? We hear about some, a boy being put into the Nile River, and we know that the next chapter, that's exactly what's going to happen. Moses is going to be put in the Nile River, and Moses is going to be the very person that ends up bringing salvation by God's power to the entire people. And we know once again this man, with all of the power that he's supposed to have, he's the most powerful man in the world at this point, is no match for God. And what we're supposed to see through this repeated failure on Pharaoh's part is that God's commitment to bless is unstoppable. Again, it's something that we see if we continue throughout the Bible's story. Saul tries to quash David. That got him nowhere. And David becomes this victorious king, the, the great king of Israel. We know the story of Jesus as, as he was killed by people who are trying to stop God's blessing, but that wasn't enough. Death is never enough to stop God. And Jesus is resurrected because God is going to bless his people. His blessing is unstoppable. And we need to hear that. More than that, we need to believe that, don't we? Because we, we can hear a lot of pronouncements of doom. You know, we, as God's people, continue to be the people that are commissioned with blessing the world. And all the time we are hearing pronouncements of our doom. Science has disproved Christianity, we're told again and again. Or there's the statistician in the newspapers that's saying Christianity is coming to an end when you just look at the numbers. Don't you believe it? There is nothing that is going to be able to stand in the way of God's commitments to bless. And we even see evidence right now in India, in China, there are many who are coming to Christ and communities are being changed even as we with our small mindset think, oh no, the sky is falling. God is not like that because his commitment to bless is unstoppable. And that's true not just for the world, but that's true for you. God is committed to bless you. And no matter how terrifying the things that you're facing right now might seem, they are nothing compared to God. But that does bring up something, and this is the third thing I want us to see in the story, is that is that God's commitment to bless the world is real even though it doesn't feel like it. There's an important technique that this writer uses that it's important for us to notice, I think. Do you notice in the very first 19 verses, there is a word, specifically a name, that is completely absent from the passage? Did you, did you pick up on it? The name is God. 
For the whole first 19 verses, God is never mentioned. No, he's hinted at. We talk about fruitfulness and multiplying when we realize that that's God who's done that. It says the more that Pharaoh tries to stop it, the more that he's failing, and we realize that's God behind that. But God's name is never mentioned. And the point is, there is this period of time in the life of Israel where it doesn't seem like God is there, where he seems hidden, even absent. We probably don't feel this because we get through chapters 1 and 2 to chapter 3 really quickly. It takes us just a few minutes if you're reading the story of Exodus. But we need to realize that the chapters 1 and 2 are recording more than a century of Israel's history. It's more than a hundred years that Israel experiences Pharaoh directly attacking and making their lives miserable without relief. And so just try to put yourself in the shoes of, say, an Israelite woman part of the way through this hundred years of misery. Your dad has always been away because he was working, and that work ended up killing him. He died at a young age. You grow up, you get married to someone else who's also working. You barely can make ends meet. It's hard. You're a minority, and you are never treated with any kind of respect. You become pregnant, which is exciting but also terrifying because you've heard rumors that there are these plans to try to kill your child if that child is a boy. And you realize you can't do anything about it. You don't have any police to go to. The power is all against you. And there is no relief. Now, there are these moments when you are huddled around with your family maybe over a meal or maybe in the quiet of night, and, and you, you tell the story again, the story of your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather Abraham, of how Abraham knew the one true God, not the gods of the Egyptians, but the real God, and that God said, I'm going to make your nation great, and through this nation who will be numerous, the world will be blessed. And you keep telling that story to each other. But as you try to hold on to the story, you look around, and it's really hard to see it. I mean, where is God? Now, we, we can see it, right? We can see the plot line. We, we recognize these clues. It's clear in the way that it's written. We have this distance where we know, look, God is making you fruitful and multiplying, and no matter what is standing in the way, God keeps doing it. We can see God, but they wouldn't have been able to. And we know where it's going. We know the great story, the ten plagues, the Red Sea, Moses. Yes, it's going to be awesome, but they don't know that. Many of them die without ever having seen any relief. And what we're supposed to understand is that God's blessing, his commitment to blessing, is real, even though it won't feel like it sometimes. I mean, it, it raises the question, doesn't it? I wonder how often that's the case for us, that we, we are experiencing the blessing of God. His hand is guiding and providing, but there are so many things in our lives that we just don't see it. 
I mean, it's certainly the way it must have been for the disciples. Just imagine again that moment where Jesus is hanging on the cross, the most brutal, humiliating defeat one could have imagined. There is no way in that moment that they would have said, yes, God is faithful, he is good, look at what he has done. Except now when we look back and we see the cross, what do we say? God is faithful and he is good, look at what he has done. Because God's blessing, his commitment to bless is real even when it doesn't feel like it. I think that's important for us to hear. It's important for me to hear. I mean, we get so inundated right now with, with hurricanes and political division and, and international unrest and, 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 and financial insecurity, and, and that can just become the narrative for us. And then even apart from that, we, we get so overwhelmed by exhaustion and anxiety and feelings of personal failure and it can be really hard to go God is committed to blessing me and yet even though it doesn't feel like it it's real I'd like to encourage you to just work at this one discipline to to approach your day saying I am going to look to see where God is showing his grace because I promise you every day God is showing his grace to you and I promise you all to not because I know this as always experientially but because I know this from the promises of God that there will come a day that you will look back at even right now even if you're in a moment of difficulty and you'll say wow look at what God did. Because God's commitment to bless is unstoppable and it is real even though it doesn't feel like it in the moment. Well, there's one more thing that I'd like us to see from this story and that is that as we see this reality of God's commitment to bless, we are called to be people who count on God's blessing. That's our calling, to be people who count on God's blessing. And the way we see this is in the story of these two women. It's interesting, even though they're only there for a few verses, these two midwives are named, Shipra and Pua. And the importance of that is to show you that these are significant people. You should pay attention to them. You should pay attention to their example. Specifically, we should pay attention to the choice that they made. Just think about the situation they were in for a moment. They are staring down the single most powerful person, human being, in the world right now. Pharaoh was considered to be a god by the Egyptians. What he said went. And when he says, kill all of the baby boys, you can't wiggle out of that with some sort of escape clause. Well, we kind of did it. It either happens or it doesn't. And so they are facing a choice in that moment. Do they go with what they see and with what seems real right then? Or do they count on God's blessing? Do they trust that God's promises, though they can't feel them, are real? And and I think we're meant to see this even in chapter 1 because it's meant to give us a vantage point of realizing that's what this story again and again and again is going to be about. When Moses is meeting God in the burning bush and Moses is terrified to do anything, he is faced with a choice. Will he go with what makes sense to him or is he going to count on God's commitment to bless? 
When the people of Israel are before the Red Sea and they see the Egyptian army coming, they have a choice. Will they count on God's commitment to bless or will they go with what's clear and what's obvious in that moment? And so also when they're in the desert and they don't see where they're going to get food, when they're on Mount Sinai and they've been waiting for Moses forever, are they going to go with what makes sense in the moment, what seems real? Are they going to count on God's commitments to bless? And we see the decision that Shipra and Pua make. Verse 17, it says, But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded. I think they made a calculation. Here's what they decided. They decided that they had more confidence in God's ability to do them good than in Pharaoh's ability to do them harm. And more confidence in God's ability to do them good than in Pharaoh's ability to do them harm. And so they counted on God's blessing. They chose to disobey, and we know what happens. We've already gone through it. When, when Pharaoh sees it, he directly confronts them. Why have you done this? And as I said, they give this ridiculous answer in this moment of panic because the Hebrew women are vigorous, and there is no way this should have worked. It makes no sense. And yet God steps in and he delivers them. And let me say that is always, always what God does for those who count on his blessing. He always delivers them. I realize some of you might be saying, hey, wait a second, that's not always the case. Sometimes, even when we pray and we count on God, we suffer. Yes, that's true. Sometimes God rescues us from suffering Sometimes God rescues us through suffering. We only need look at Jesus to see that. He was brought through suffering even unto death, but he was delivered. Friends, it is true that whatever we face in the world, we should have less confidence in its ability to do us harm than we have confidence in God's ability to do us good. Because he is committed to blessing you and to blessing me. And so we, we have the choice. And let me tell you, this is the choice that you and I have before us every day. As we make decisions with how we spend our money, with how we give ourselves, with how either we decide to be defensive or generous towards others, are we more confident in God's ability to bless or are we more confident in the world's ability to hurt us? And what we see in this passage is from the very beginning, God is committed to blessing us. And even more than that, God's blessing cannot be stopped by anything. And even though we don't see it, we don't feel it, God's commitment to bless you is real. And as Exodus opens, it invites us, count on that. Bet your lives on the blessing of God. I want us to take a moment as we have been hearing this passage, maybe thinking about things, not, maybe something completely unrelated to what I've said, but as we've been looking at what God has done, I'd like to take just a moment for us to quietly pray, reflect, listen, and when we feel appropriate, maybe confess our sins, and then I'll lead us at the end of this time. Would you please join with me in silent prayer?
Father, I think of um, this blessing that is so often pronounced in the Old Testament, that you would bless us and keep us and cause your face to shine upon us. Lord, we confess to you that oftentimes we do not trust the reality that your face is shining upon us. Lord, even though you have shown us your love, you have shown us your commitment even to the cross, to giving your son, so often, Father, we doubt you. We doubt your love. We doubt your commitments to bless, and so we respond in fear and in sin and in selfishness. And Lord, we confess that before you, asking you to forgive us and asking you to change us because, Lord, we want to live in the freedom of knowing that you are our God and you are good and that you will bless us. So please, Father, renew us, redeem us, as we now come to the table, as we eat, as we drink, Lord, would you please reassure our hearts of your smiling face towards us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. And here, uh, the good news from Second Peter, sorry, First Peter 2, that is 9 to 10. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Together, thanks be to God. <laughs>